Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. No, wait, we're not in the Congo this time. We're in Wales. That's better. Now on with the podcast. Episode 8b, Stanley's Early Life Interval. So, for those interested in Stanley's background and his story before Africa, here is the interval. I hope you are sitting with your pre-ordered drinks in hand, as every good theatre-goer should. Henry Morton Stanley was born to 18-year-old Elizabeth Parry in 1841 in Denby, North Wales. She was an unmarried girl, and whilst he was a very young baby, she abandoned him and broke off all contact. He was taken in and raised by his loving grandparents until his grandfather, Moses Parry, passed away when he was only five and a half years old. His grandmother was unable to cope with him alone. Initially, it was thought that he could be raised by his uncles, who also lived in the town, and they were reasonably well-off butchers. They, however, decided that they would be better off without another mouth to feed. Henry was to be put under the care of a local couple, Mr Richard Price, a groundsman and gravedigger, and his wife Jenny. Both were in their fifties and had three older children still at home with them. They were a desperately poor family and requested a stipend to look after the boy, and he appears to have settled in for six months and formed a bond with the Prices. Looking at this outwardly happy arrangement, the uncles ascertained that parental instincts would supersede financial problems, and they decided to end financial support. But they were wrong. Six-year-old Henry was taken, under the guise of a walk, to the workhouse in St Asaph. Once there, their 27-year-old son Richard rang the doorbell. He told the six-year-old boy that this was to buy cakes, but as soon as the door was opened, he was discarded and the young man hurried away. Henry did not have a supported start and the treachery of this heartless abandonment stayed with him for the rest of his life. The workhouse was one of the toughest of places in Victorian Britain. Boys and girls, and men and women, literally lived on bread and gruel alone. Welsh was the primary language here, but Henry learned to read and write in English, and showed talent in mathematics and geography. It was a brutal environment of speculated but probable abuse, and it was operated under a strict regime. Everybody was woken up at 6am and was locked in by 8pm. The young Henry dreamed of escape. At the age of 14 he achieved this. He moved in with perhaps the only member of his family to show kindness after his grandparents. His cousin John Morris, a school teacher. Morris taught Henry literature and mathematics after teaching the other children, although he was scolded by his own mother for fear of darkening his own social prospects just by associating himself with a bastard. At this young age, Henry knew that this wouldn't last, and at 17 he moved to live with his uncle and aunt, Tom and Maria Morris, in Liverpool. He had resorted to sending them a letter pleading for a place to stay, as he had nowhere else to go. He was broadly welcomed there, but in Christmas 1858 he had his head turned by the opportunities of life at sea. Just before Christmas Eve, he left a snowy Liverpool behind, as he sailed on the American packet ship, the Windermere, bound for the New World. He landed in New Orleans after a two-month voyage, 
and after a disagreement over pay, he jumped ship and felt, for the first time in his life, a free and unjudged man. There was no class system here to judge him, and he was treated as an equal to his great astonishment. Mindful of the Congo, though, we need to emphasise that this equality was only afforded to Europeans. Slavery was very much part of the social system of Louisiana and the southern states at this time. Stanley undertook a few jobs, mostly working in general stores, but in 1861 this very social system became a factor in the American Civil War. After a lady sent him a humiliating package which questioned his bravery, he signed up for the Confederate Army. On the 26th of July he became a member of the Dixie Greys, who joined the 6th Arkansas Infantry near Little Rock. After mobilisation they continued north under General Johnston to meet the Union Army which fought under General Grant. They met just after they moved out of Arkansas at Shiloh, Tennessee. The Confederacy fielded over 40,000 men and they were armed with a variety of weapons including shotguns, hunting rifles and flintlock muskets. Henry's Dixie Grey Regiment carried the latter. The Union Army fielded 63,000 men, all armed with rifles and half already battle-hardened. But this was not as one-sided as these statistics suggest. This was to be one of the bloodiest battles in the American Civil War and nearly 20,000 men were killed or wounded, not including the 3,000 souls lost or captured. Stanley was involved in the first day's action with the Confederate attack. From six o'clock in the morning, they advanced to force the Union Army into the Tennessee River. Initially, they charged forward, swapping their old muskets for Union rifles as they found them. But by mid-morning, the Union Army had regrouped and the hails of fire raged from both sides. Stanley was in complete shock at the carnage. There were wounded and dead everywhere, including men Stanley had known from his time working in the general stores. He wondered how anyone could survive such violence, but somehow he did. The fighting continued all day, but both sides were resolute. The next morning Stanley led another charge into the Union lines, but his unit was outflanked. He was not wounded though, but he was captured and sent on to St Louis. It does appear that he was popular amongst his peers, but his Confederate army days were over. In April 1682 he was transferred to Camp Douglas, near Chicago. As the war casualties ramped up, Stanley, with many others, became horrified at the industrial scale of the killing. Amidst this long and bloody war the conditions in the camps worsened. Dysentery and typhoid were rife, and although he was loyal to his southern friends, Stanley's belief in the war and in slavery were gone. He lasted six weeks, and when the offer to join the Union artillery was made, his survival instincts, born of his troubles when young, took over and he switched sides. Dysentery had taken hold of him, and although he was temporarily discharged, one year later he deserted the army, and still conflicted by loyalty to the south, he went to sea. Amazingly, after a number of voyages, he rejoined the Union, although this time in the Navy. Here he achieved the distinction of being the only person to have been in both the Confederate and Union armies and the Union Navy. In July of 1864 he joined the crew of the USS Minnesota as the ship's clerk, after he failed to mention his previous sailing experience. At first his time aboard was quiet, 
but in December of that year the ship was involved in the bombardment of Fort Fisher, near Wilmington in North Carolina. The time on board was valuable for Stanley, as he managed to spend hours reading travel diaries, his new obsession, and he wrote some articles detailing the fort engagement, which was successful in helping sell a few papers. Two months later, yearning for even more excitement, you would have thought he had seen enough already. He deserted the Navy, and by May 1865 was working as a journalist, although officially only as an occasional correspondent, for the Missouri Democrat. This was brief, as usual, and he left after a short while to undertake a 600-mile expedition, travelling east on the Platte River to Nebraska. This was to be attempted using a homemade boat. Stanley's diaries show his first forays into the perils of a river expedition, and there were capsizes, gunpoint standoffs, and perhaps hostile native Indians on the banks. Despite these adversities, though, Stanley made it through, although he ran along the bank during the second half of the trip, trying, unsuccessfully, to catch his friend, after he was flung from the boat in rapids. Despite this misadventure, Stanley and his companions then travelled on to their next pre-agreed journey. This was his so-called Asia Minor expedition. They were to travel through Turkey on the Silk Road to the Himalayas. They would journey through Armenia, Georgia and Uzbekistan. His appetite for adventure knew no bounds. Again though, the trip was a failure. They never got further than Smyrna in eastern Turkey, where they ended up sword fighting with a local and stealing his horses. The Turk and Stanley gave differing reasons as to how this came about, but the net result was the same. Stanley and his two companions were captured, bound, beaten and otherwise mistreated before they were handed to the authorities. They were facing a considerable time in a Turkish jail. Revealing an astute grasp of the situation, however, Stanley managed to present a convincing enough defence, based on self-defence, in light of an attempted assault. As soon as they were free from the clutches of the authorities, they fled Turkey and the expedition was abandoned. Stanley travelled back to America, where his most promising future lay. He did so via home, though, and he spent his first Christmas with his family. He positioned himself as a naval officer and even gave a talk to the workhouse where he grew up as an example of what could be achieved. His abandonment in his youth still needed to be remedied, but I doubt that this would have been enough. In 1867, Stanley was back in St. Louis. He cajoled the editor and was again writing for the Missouri Democrat paper, although this time under full employment. He was assigned to the New World's great colonial expansion, the drive west of the United States of America. He was to accompany General Hancock's army to cover the campaigns against the Kiowa and Comanche peoples. Here we can see direct parallels with the events in the Congo. Initially, Stanley followed the zeitgeist that the indigenous peoples were horrifically murdering the new settlers, but his views began to change. Confronting the bloody horror of the conflicts at this time, Stanley started to feel that perhaps the settlers were to blame for this oppression. He went so far as to persuade General Hancock from burning an Indian village, as was common practice. He directly quoted Chief Santanta of the Kiowa tribe, so that he, as with King Alfonso all those centuries before, can speak to us in his own words. Here he described how he felt when being introduced to the idea of land with boundaries, within which he could live. I have heard that you intend to set apart a reservation near the mountains of western Oklahoma. I don't want to settle. 
I love to roam over the prairie. I feel free and happy, but when we settle down we get pale and die. A long time ago this land belonged to our fathers, but when I go up to the Arkansas River I see camps of soldiers on its banks. The soldiers cut down my timber, they kill my buffalo, and when I see that my heart feels like bursting. I feel sorry. This was another man watching his way of life and that of his people fade into history by the arrival of newcomers. He too was largely ignored. Stanley felt a deep, deep sympathy for the Indians, but he was still a man of his time. He was a firm believer that the lands in the West could be developed to the advancement of all. He would retain this on his great African trip, which was coming closer. Taking a further risk, Stanley eventually left the Missouri Democrat and headed to New York, where he managed to get a job at the New York Herald. This was the most popular paper in America at the time. Showing great boldness, he convinced the paper to take him on, and he was sent to Spain to cover what was thought to be a revolution, as significant as the French Revolution in 1867. But the Spanish War didn't escalate as expected. With no war to cover in Spain, he was sent for the first time to Africa. He was to report back on the Abyssinian campaign. The British had sent an army to punish Emperor Tuodros, who governed part of what is now modern Ethiopia. Emperor Tuodros had been capturing European missionaries and supporting slavery. The British Empire would not allow this to continue. In another epoch-defining battle, Stanley witnessed 13,000 British and Imperial troops face 9,000 Abyssinians. The British regiments were equipped with new Snyder-Enfield single-shot breech-loading rifles delivered specifically for this campaign. The Indian infantry regiments from the Punjab, Bengal and Bombay were equipped with the older smoothbore muskets in the wake of the 1857 mutiny. The Abyssinians, on the other hand, were armed with a wide variety of ancient and modern firearms, swords, spears and shields. Stanley saw another massacre, and the British army lost two men, yes, two men, with 18 wounded. The emperor lost 700 men, with a further 1,200 wounded. After this defeat, the Emperor committed suicide using pistols given to him by Queen Victoria. We must save the details of this story for another time though, for at the end of this campaign Stanley was given a new assignment. The New York Herald was asking Stanley to travel to Africa to find the famous missionary David Livingstone. As far as the West was concerned, he had been missing around Lake Tanganyika for a number of years. Stanley wasted no time and at 27 years old, he set sail for Zanzibar to do this very thing. Carrying the stars and stripes, and identifying himself as an American, he travelled to East Africa in search of the missing man. After a tip-off by Livingston's friend in Zanzibar, Captain Kirk, he headed for the lake. The journey itself was eventful, but ultimately Stanley found Livingston in the Arab trading town of Ujuji, today in western Tanzania. Livingstone was a Christian of his age, and he had spent time in Africa to spread Christianity. His calling was to save souls, develop trade, and stop the slave trade. He had survived largely due to his protection of the Arab caravan leader, Muhammad Bib Salah. Muhammad's relationships with Livingstone, however, was not entirely benign. He had left Livingstone without the support of his entourage. After he had cajoled them to desert, through the persuasive arts of his troop of concubines, 
Livingstone had seen much during his time in Africa, but the experiences he had seen had not brutalised him. In his letters to the New York Herald, whom he was grateful to, having invested money to help him, he wrote, The strangest disease I have seen in this country seems really to be broken-heartedness, and it attacks free men who have been captured and made slaves. Livingstone's rediscovery to the wider world and his retained nobleness rekindled his worldwide fame. More importantly for our story, though, Stanley became just as famous. The New York Herald did not want to give up on the reflective glow of such a celebrity reporter, and they sent him once again to Spain to continue his coverage of the conflicts there. In 1873 he was sent again to Africa to cover the latest bout of the British Ashanti War in the Gold Coast. This conflict again revealed the Gulf in weaponry. In the main battle the Ashanti casualties approached 2,000 versus the British casualties of only 200 people, with four dead. The British rifles were superior to the Arab guns, and the imbalance of the British army versus African kingdoms was greater than that of the Arab caravans. Before we jump to judgement though, the underlying situation was not clear-cut. The British had declared war on the Ashanti after their continual attacks on the friendly Fanti tribe who lived on the coast. Whilst the Ashanti were praised for the metalwork and carvings, they were also brutal and ruthless conquerors. Slaves, criminals and enemies were decapitated by the thousands each year in their capital, which was decorated by their skulls. After this, Stanley returned again to England, where our Congo story picks up. He met Edwin Arnold, the editor of London's Daily Telegraph, who committed to funding £6,000 towards a new sensational expedition. Stanley was to find the source of the Nile once and for all. The proviso was that this would be matched by the New York Herald, not to be outdone, the American editor's competitiveness was piqued, and he agreed. In 1874, Stanley arrived in Zanzibar to carry out his East African expedition commissioned by the press. The expedition started on the mainland at Bagamoyu on the 17th of November 1874. The first objective was to circumnavigate Lake Victoria, to determine whether this was connected to Lake Albert. This would then allow him to continue north. This was not an easy task. During this first leg, Henry had to constantly fight, especially around Wherewe Island, which was labelled the Island of Death. The expedition continued, though, and despite losses, travelled a further 100 miles west of Lake Victoria to Lake Edward, where they turned south to Ujuji, some 350 miles away. The first part of this expedition is a story in its own right, but I leave the details of this for the listener to pursue at their own leisure. In September 1876, nearly two years after leaving the East Coast, Stanley once again entered today's DRC and crossed over Lake Tanganyika. He had lost dozens of men to desertion, fighting and disease, but he was unperturbed and determined to keep up with this expedition. And it is here that we can rejoin the history of the Congo proper. The interval is over. I hope you enjoyed your ice cream but let's get back to it. But like I told you, Stanley's early life was too interesting to be completely overlooked. Wouldn't you agree? For much, much more, read Tim Gill's biography. So until next time, thanks for listening and safe travels. 